episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, and I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And for those who might be new to the show, the other thing we're doing this summer is looking at what can Vermont learn from outside perspectives. Since we are such a Vermont-centric show, we are we are looking to hear from other folks who are in the state this weekend, uh, this summer. And to that note, I want to welcome to the show Benjamin Frost, who is the Managing Director on Policy and Public Affairs of the New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority, also called New Hampshire Housing. And for those who have listened to our shows previously, you might be familiar with our interviews with Mara Collins, who is with the Vermont Housing Finance, Finance Authority. Program. Thank you. And it's kind of a sister organization to what Mara does. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great you're here. And we're going to be talking about the second home market, which, of course, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser and I have been talking about a lot. So I'm so glad you're here for this conversation, Emily. We have, and I'm so glad to be here too. And I like to call it the vacation home market or the non-primary home market, because I think for some folks, this might be their third, fourth, or fifth home. And so ah. might as well not narrow us down to only second homes when we're talking about it. And I am so glad to be here and diving in on this, because I think this is actually an interestingly New England-specific issue in some ways. Mm-hmm. So Ben, just to give you a little lay of the land so Emily's in, in Brattleboro, I'm in Dummerston, but uh, Emily went to Marlboro College. I grew up in the Deerfield Valley, which of course has really big vacation home market. Uh, the ski area and, and up in London Dairy with Stratton, there is another large uh, vacation home market. They're not exclusive to just around the ski areas. I have been hearing as a journalist from a, a number of towns that it's getting harder and harder for year-round residents or permanent residents, however you want to say that, to find affordable rents. And some folks have told me that, hey, maybe it's the second home market and that's a problem, but we'd be sunk without it. And some folks say, oh my gosh, if it wasn't for this vacation home market, we would all be thriving and happy and perfect. <laughs> I'm kind of guessing that the truth is in, in between there somewhere. So could you help us kind of pull it apart? Like, what does it mean to have a large vacation home market on an economy or a housing market? Sure, Olga. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Vermont. And a long time ago, I was the executive director of a regional planning commission that bridged New Hampshire and Vermont. It was the Upper Valley, Lake Sunapee Regional Planning Commission. It's now divided between the states. Mm-hmm. So I have I have a sense of Vermont politics. And um, if this qualifies me anymore, my, my wife is from CK. <laughs> it was a very sad day when she gave up her Vermont uh, driver's license. Uh, but, uh, you know, so New Hampshire is in in many ways a lot like Vermont in, in this respect. You know, the prevalence of vacation homes, second homes, third homes, fourth homes, uh, what have you. And if you look at, at the New Hampshire market, it's the lakes region, you know, around Lake Winnipesaukee and Squam Lake and, and those areas and the mountains, Mount Washington Valley centered on Conway and 
and going up to you know Littleton, Franconia, Sugar Hill, that area. Uh, so there's there's a lot of similarities. Some of it's focused on you know summertime vacationing. Sometimes and some of it's focused on the, the ski areas, uh, but it is all over. Uh, so there's there's a lot of similarities, and I think we're we're seeing between our two states is similarities of economic impact. So it's a it's kind of a can't live with it, can't live without it uh, sort of uh, problem that these these towns face who have uh, this uh, high proportion of we'll call them vacation homes, uh, homes that are not people's primary residences. They do bring in a lot of really important tax revenue to the municipalities that host those those places, and they don't have the same degree of expenses associated with them. You know, it's often often cited as a opposition support for against a, a new housing development, whether it's affordable housing or even high-end housing, you know, it's who's going to educate the kids. Well, you know, the, the math is a lot more complex than just that because people who move into a town also support the local economy. They're the people who buy the goods at stores, who do the shopping, who build community. And that's something I think that we really miss with uh, the, the presence of second homes. We have people who are going there, but who aren't really part of the community. And I think that that's, that's part of the, the, the negative impact of uh, second home development is you get all this development that doesn't really add to the community in a, in a way that is more than fiscal. It does do that, and that can be helpful, although it depends on how it's done. It can also be a drain on municipal coffers as well. So many threads there. So excited. Um, I definitely want to talk about the cost burden opportunity. I want to talk about the taxes. But I think first, I would love to talk about this thread of building community, because I think this is a really interesting aspect of that. So there's sort of the spiritual aspect of it, that living next to a home that's vacant three quarters of the time or, you know, 99% of the time has a certain heavy element to it when you're living there that you don't really have a neighbor. And there's some freedom in that. Absolutely. But there's also that, you know, there's no one to borrow sugar from and there's no one to fight with inside your own mind about, you know, whatever is on their lawn. It's just a, that's a very, very different thing. And a street that has multiple houses like that, it's very hard for neighborhoods to come together. Right. And then in some communities where you have, you know, 50% of the folks or even more, if it's the whole community, the crew of volunteers that our communities in Vermont, and I believe your communities in New Hampshire rely on in terms of just the amount of volunteerism that we expect in order to keep all of the trains running to the, as you know, well as they do, we don't have that either. Mm -hmm. What are the other sort of threads of that lost community that you see over in New Hampshire about this? I'll, I'll start with a, a community that's, that's not lost. And uh, it's my, my little town of, of Warner, New Hampshire. It's uh I describe it to people who aren't familiar with the area as, as the place where Boston stops on its way to Vermont. It's exit nine on I-89, but it's a lot more than exit nine. It's more than the market basket and the McDonald's and the state liquor store, of course. Uh, there is actually a village that is really uh, great, pretty vibrant, although it has suffered from COVID. Most of the restaurants in town closed, but are now uh, reopening, uh, which is a great sign. Warner, in fact, in the... 30s, 40s, and 50s was one of the centers of the New Hampshire ski industry. Mm. It had a little slope. It was called, you know, Breakneck Hill, I think. And there was not ironically a 
crutch factory at the bottom of the hill. Um, but you know, the trains were- A what factory? Crutch factory, you know, wooden crutches. So you, oh. you pee down, break your leg and you get a crutch at the bottom. Is That's it, you know, a good just, symbiotic relationship between business. <laughs> good thinking there. But it's now a town of about 3,000 people, but the trains would come up from Boston and the whole town would come together and feed the people, you know, the couple thousand people, the entire John Hancock company, the insurance company would do its ski day in Warner years and years and years until finally it just collapsed under the, the weight of the size of the thing and you know, the, the, the development of much larger uh, commercial ski areas. But it was really a community effort to bring people to Warner. And there were also, for summertime people, there were camps around uh, some of the, some, you know, we don't have real big lakes, but we call them lakes, ponds in Warner that have now developed into year-round residences. So I'd say this is a really positive development from tourism uh, industry that we saw uh, in my little town. But then you look at, you know, places like you know, Woodstock and Lincoln, you know, which are the west end of the, the kank up on uh, I-93. Mm-hmm. And what you have in, in Lincoln in particular is a tremendous amount of uh, condominium development you know, associated with the, the ski areas there. And those are people who just come and go. And, and as Emily said, you know, people, if you get a street of houses and one of them is year-round occupied, the rest of them are short-term rentals. But people occupying those short-term rentals, even if it is a regular flow of people, they're not there to interact with the people in the other houses. They're there to, only to interact with the people within the house. So they're not in any way building community. They're not adding to uh, the, the fabric of a community. Uh, they're not interested in doing that. That's not what they're there for. They're, they're there to get away from those sorts of things sometimes and to just you know, have some time alone. So I think that this is, this is an important consideration for communities that are faced with this kind of development, if that is what they wanna do, to the degree they can control it. Mm-hmm. Because the regulation of the short-term rental market is a, a pretty thorny legal question. And it's a thorny political question as well. And I know that politicians in both of our states are wrestling with this. Thank you, Ben. I think what's, what's standing out for me right now is on that note of community about purpose. When we are in a, an area, in a town, what is our purpose for being there? And I'm sure when all of us have traveled, we have very different goals than someone who is in a community full time. And that's just sitting with me. The other thing that's sitting with me is my stepfather used to own an inn and restaurant in downtown Wilmington. And I remember seeing how the business changed and the business changed for many, many reasons. But I remember seeing a shift in downtown Wilmington as Mount Snow built more and more condos and or lodges on its own property to keep more and more people there all the time and how the tourist areas in Wilmington kind of, in my experience, emptied out. And I'm talking like 80s, 80s, 90s. This is a while ago. And and how that changed just who was coming into town and where the money was going and, and those sorts of things for, for the downtown, at least. And in my experience, I 
can't say what other people saw. I think that's an interesting thing because it's sort of the mark because the vacation home market is indeed such a market with so many market forces behind it. The sort of trends in what's hot for vacationing changes and you leave, you're left with a lot of emptied out infrastructure as trends change. And as people have a really large, you know, multinational corporations even have a pretty large interest in pushing people to that sort of next hot thing in Mm -hmm. vacationing. And so, you know, here we have, and I know in New Hampshire, you have those lovely roadside motels that were like quite a delightful part of vacationing. And if you can find one that's like still kept up, it's actually really lovely, that now are rent by the week for folks who can't afford down payments or um, first, you know, first and security on an apartment and are really, for the most part, fairly substandard housing in our area, though they do perform a really important niche in the housing market. They do. But as, as you point out there, it's not that they're of low quality construction. It's just that they're not intended to be residences. They're intended to be there for overnight stays or for a couple of nights. But people actually wind up do living in them because they can't afford someplace else. Th- those sorts of places have actually in some areas served a benefit during COVID as, you know, for deconcentration of homeless shelters. Mm-hmm. So as people weren't traveling, they weren't going to these, these uh, motels, you know, they, uh, the shelters were able to use some of the, say, the CARES Act funding to rent spaces in those motels for uh, a homeless population that they couldn't continue to house in those same numbers at the shelters themselves because they had to spread out. That's here, true here as well. And I think we're looking to see how much we can use the ARPA funds to perhaps sustain that and do some um, updates and maintenance on some of those units to keep and them. Of course, they'll need some retrofitting to be Absolutely. actual resident units. So, you know, to, get, to be a, have a kitchen, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the, the thing about, I just want to go back to what you talked about, the, the, the shifts of industry. One thing about residences is that they're designed to be residences and it's easy for them to continue to serve that purpose. So a big box store, you know, once it's spent its life after 15 years and the, the company moves on or goes bankrupt, um, moves on to a different model, like Walmart, the ever increasing size of the store, they've, as they've increased the sizes of stores, they've abandoned the stores that they've uh, previously had occupied. What are those to be used for? Now, maybe they'll be used by another company for that needs a smaller footprint. But we have a lot of those things that are just sitting around vacant or the malls. Malls are really single purpose things that, that, and the purpose is gone. People always need a place to live. So the good thing about even vacation homes or second homes is that they can shift between this, these different types of residential uses, whether they're permanent residences or long-term rentals or short-term rentals. They're pretty adaptable. And that, I think that's a good thing. I, the way you frame it, it does sound like a good thing to me if we're talking about an emptying out of vacation homes. But what we're seeing right now in our region, and I'm curious that's to hear about your region, because they're so um, easy to transform between the two functions, that means that homes that might be permanent homes for people are now becoming vacation homes for people. Yes. And that means that there is no, we have no mechanisms of maintaining permanent housing in our community. Yeah. And that's a question I would love to 
ask you, Ben, too, when an area is shifting between, say, vacation and, and permanent homes, do you see the biggest impact on home ownership? Or do you see the biggest impact on rent or the rental community? Like, who feels this first? I'm not sure I can say who feels it worse. I can say both feel it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a a couple of examples. I I looked at some numbers in advance of of talking with you. Uh, And and of course, we have the the census data that, you know, the 2020 census data just came out. So we're all very interested in looking at that. But just remember, the census reflects the April 1st, 2020, where people were living. And that's just at the beginning of COVID, so we can't look at the, the long, you know, the, the impact of, of COVID in the census numbers. But longer-term trends, pre-COVID and current COVID, and now we hope post-COVID, we'll be seeing these patterns. So I looked at in the, the census data, and this is the American Community Survey, which is the what replaced the census long form a number of years ago. There's a, a five-year grouping of data that looks at and so it's pretty accurate because it's a, a moving average over five years. Looks at the occupied units, and this is in New Hampshire counties, and the vacant units, which is a, a pretty good surrogate for second homes. Some of them are just vacant because the, the owners uh, aren't there. Uh, but some, a good number of them are actually second homes or third homes or fourth homes. They're vacation homes statewide in New Hampshire. And I don't know what the numbers are in Vermont. Uh, 16% of all of the units were vacant. This is the, the ACS from 2015 to 2019. So that's a hundred a little over 100,000 units in a state that were vacant. So out of a total of 640,000 residential units in the state total. Looking at the county numbers and just recognize so that, you know, Coas County is, the, is New Hampshire's northernmost county. It's a lot, the economy is a lot like the Northeast Kingdom. And it is the least populated county. Uh, and the economy has suffered with the parting of uh, the, the paper mills. 36% of the units in Coas County are vacant. So you could infer that most of those are probably you know, second homes, uh, camps, uh, what have you. Carroll County, which is the Mount Washington Valley, the area around Conway, New Hampshire, and the, the ski areas there and the summer tourism there as well, 48 48%, 48% percent of all of the units in Carroll County are vacant. That is an extraordinary number for an entire county. And most of those are going to be for vacation purposes. Mm. That has a huge impact on that entire area. And a lot of people would say, great, it's driving the economy. That's what makes Conway uh, as a tourist destination work. And so it's great for the Conway economy. Unless you're an employee and an hourly employee in one of the retail establishments or one of the hospitality establishments trying to find a place to live because the costs have just gone through the roof. New Hampshire Housing does an annual uh, statewide residential rental cost survey, and we just published that last month for 2021. And uh, for for Carroll County, the area around Conway, the median rent is over $1,000, which might not seem huge, but if you're making 12 bucks an hour. You can't afford that. And it's gone up 8.8% since 2020. Uh, wow. So the, prices, the prices are going up. Fast. Yes, Ouch. going up really fast. The, the housing market, generally speaking, during COVID was just nuts. And, and none of us really expected that. We expected it to tank, and it mm-hmm. didn't. 
So we're trying to figure out long-term what the impact of COVID is going to be on, on all of these, these things, but uh, it's tough to say right now. So in, like I said, in statewide overall, 16% of the units um, might be second homes, but in places like Coloss County, way up north, uh, or Belknap County, which is the Lakes region, 35% are vacant or second homes. Carroll County, almost half are vacant or second homes. That's a, a huge proportion of all of the units on the market. I'd be curious, too, in those communities, how many of the folks who actually work in the communities, even in the tourist industry, how many of them still actually live in that community or if they've had to move out and are now commuting in to work and, you know, what has happened there as well? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it may be at some point census data will actually reveal if you can stratify commute time by place of work, by income, that would tell you a lot, or you could do kind of a survey. But it is true. I mean, uh, and we hear this anecdotally a lot, that people who are working in these industries actually have to drive to where they can afford to live. From a, a mortgage purchase standpoint, it's drive till they qualify. Uh, from a rental standpoint, it's drive until you find something you can afford. Mm-hmm. Right. This this issue of affordability is is really key, uh, and I I read I think it was the recent seven days uh, had an article yeah. about housing affordability, the housing crunch in Vermont, and there was this story, really poignant story about this couple that was that lived in Stowe, and they were trying to find a place they could afford, and they couldn't they couldn't find a place they could afford to buy in and around Stowe. You, you think about Stowe, oh yeah, of course, it's it's a really hot vacation spot, so they are moving back. To Michigan, where they came from. Mm-hmm. And that's a really sad story. Sad for Vermont. And it's a sort of pattern we see repeated here in New Hampshire as well. We did a labor shed, which I think is the greatest phrase, just to pause for a minute. Labor sheds are like watersheds for folks, and it's where the labor for a region comes and goes to the same way a watershed is where the rivers and streams and floodplains come and go. So we did the labor shed study in Wyndham County and the surrounding counties because we're sort of in the we're very much in the tri-state area or a tri-state area the tri-state area certainly not (laughs) but what we saw is exactly what you described that we have people with incredibly long commute times to get between where they work and where they live because of wages and affordability not necessarily lining up and what really you know exacerbates that so much is both the fact that if you're making an hourly wage, the cost to travel is quite extraordinary extra cost Mm -hmm. and really hard to figure in when you're looking to find affordable rent. It's really hard when you're budgeting at that level of stress to really thinking about both of those numbers together because one is so much more fixed than the other and so much more regular than the other. That's a really important point. And and for for folks to, to want to explore this on their own, there's a great website that is created by uh, the, the Center for Neighborhood Technologies, CNT, called the Housing and Transportation Index. And it, it looks at each census tract and does this sort of fairly crudely analysis that you were just talking about having done uh, uh, for Wyndham County. And so you can look at your own community and figure out you know, what the typical cost is for housing and how far people are traveling, what your transportation costs are uh, to get to your job from where you live. It's a helpful way at looking at broader patterns. And then I'm thinking about last week, we had on a member of Vermont's Climate Council to talk about the work that they've been doing. 
And she's an appointed representative from a rural community. That's sort of part of why she was appointed as she lives in a mountain town, a very high tourist mountain town. And that when we think about the impacts on climate change, and I know how incredibly defensive rural folks feel about some of sort of density arguments and people's, um, some of the jargon and some of the stories about what we're going to need to do for climate change and everyone's going to need to move down to the cities and we're going to empty out a rural area so that we don't, you know, and I recognize that fear that people have, but what I think is a much more real thing for us to fear is the incredible carbon impact of folks who are working in some of those areas and living in the dense areas and traveling back and forth. And that the more we can have people actually living where they're working in the mountain towns, much lower carbon footprint for our states. So in addition to the costs. We are just about out of time and, and we need to go to break. But Ben, quickly, before we do that, what, what would you like to leave listeners with at this point? Well, I think let's go back to what we started with and that, um, you know, the prevalence of vac- vacation homes or second homes in communities can be helpful for taxes, but it's not great for community building. Thank you. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. Will be- back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on iTunes, Brattleboro Community Television, or the peg station nearest you in some cases, as well as Emily's YouTube channel and our Facebook page and our website, MontpelierHappyHour.Captivate.FM. I started to forget all the different places. <laughs> hey, Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those <laughs> of the hosts and the guests and not the station they're being played on, the organizations that the folks are connected to. It's just the opinions of the host and the guests. Thank you. Why, thank you. And speaking of guests, if you are just joining us, we are speaking with Ben Frost, who's the Managing Director for Policy and Public Affairs with the New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority, also known as New Hampshire Housing. And we are talking about what it means to have a large vacation home market in uh, small communities or communities in general. Ben, if we could pick apart some of the issues around taxes and and the costs of having a a second home or a vacation home market for communities. Sure. Well, you know, this is the uh, chief argument uh, in favor of resort development because you know resorts don't introduce kids to the schools. Uh, they don't well unless you have a bunch of skiing accidents. They don't press upon the uh, services of uh, local emergency response that much. Uh, although I think that is debatable. There's, they're seen as a way of uh, increasing the so-called tax base of communities as a means of mitigating long-term increases in taxes. At least that's the, that's the argument. Whether it is actually borne out in reality is a different question entirely. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so- I have a lot of thoughts about how it's borne out in reality that I've been noticing lately and thinking about, partly because I'm friends with someone who's a town clerk in a ski town. And so, and so here's some very fun stories from them. So I absolutely the schools, yes. But beyond that, when we think about the cost to the town, I think there's some really interesting ones. So I think emergency services are used a lot. I think folks in ski areas are much more accustomed to immediate medical services than I think some folks in our rural communities are used to. So I think folks go to seek medical care much more often in, you know, sort of more urban areas and expect the same when they're here, as well as also just sort of ski accidents. I think we see a lot more calls for ambulances in our ski areas. And we we know we're actually, at least here, we're experiencing some major scarcity call challenges. It's really straining the entire 911 system here. And then the expectations around what good infrastructure is, I think, are very different for tourists than they are for residents in terms of the scale of road pavement um, and the types of cars that people from out of state drive, how well plowed a road needs to be to be drivable, what delivery looks like, concerns and understanding of um, waste systems. So both stress on wastewater systems. In Vermont, I'd be curious to hear about it in New Hampshire, but I believe this is true in New Hampshire. The way you dispose of your garbage is fairly complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Good point. I think folks who are coming here from away don't necessarily understand, nor could they or should they. It's Mm -mm. way too complex, but there's very much this sort of like insider trading on like how you get rid of your garbage or how you get some sort of basic infrastructure services. And so the fact that people don't know those things also has a few, a huge cost to municipalities because they're calling for services that they wouldn't necessarily call for otherwise, or I remember there was a drowned goat in a stream recently somewhere that I was and there was a bunch of tourists around and they're like, call the police, call the, and I was like, one, I have no cell phone service. And two, like, those are not the appropriate people to call for the drowned goat. It's dead already. (laughs) (laughs) So that's like super, there's a lot of super funny stories that are like the very exaggerated versions, but I think there are a lot of extra costs because of increased expectations. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's uh, spot on. Uh, and, and I think it does depend in part, the, the impact depends in part on what sorts of vacation homes we're talking about. If it is an integrated resort, then they're going to have trash collection in that. Mm-hmm. But if you're renting someone's house, what do you mean you don't have trash pickup? I, I've got to take it to the dump. If you have a dump or transfer station, I think we, we see a lot of the same issues here uh, in New Hampshire and people coming, let's say, from away with certain more urban expectations of what is to be provided to them rather than having them fend for it on their own. And so you get those, you get those weird calls. Uh, you get the, the, the strange uh, inquiries and people are left you know, feeling like, you know, so what am I supposed to do about this thing? Well, you're supposed to take your trash home with you and dispose of it properly, uh, not find the nearest McDonald's with a dumpster and put it in there because they have to pay for your disposal now. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there are those impacts. You know, Emily, you talked about the, the, the pavement issue, and I was thinking about the overall transportation infrastructure issue. In New Hampshire, we've got I-93, the, the corridor from Boston going up to the mountains and the lakes. Friday, 
And I work in Bedford, which is the first town west of Manchester. And I drive to Warner, which is about a 40 minute drive. And my normal route is on I-93. When I'm leaving work uh, this afternoon, I'm going to check Waze or Google Maps to see what the traffic is like before I head up on I-93, because it might be backed up for miles. And so, you know, we're investing in massively in the I-93 expansion to accommodate all of this traffic, which is, you know, it's great for the tourism economy. It'll get people to the mountains and the lakes faster, but it is an extraordinary expense. And meanwhile, you know, most of the time I-93 is, does not need that capacity. And, and the locals know well enough to avoid uh, the highways during those times if they can. Uh, sometimes they don't have the option. So, I, you know, we, we, we make these choices. We do this sort of development, some of which, a lot of which is locally driven. You know, municipalities in both states choose development patterns. We, we might think, well, you know, it's, it just happened. No, our, <laughs> our, our comprehensive plans and our zoning ordinances and our land use regulations are essentially the rules of the game for developers. They're what we're telling developers we want in our communities. And if we want resort development, that is what is embodied in our, in our comprehensive plan and our zoning ordinance. So those are local decisions. And the permitting decisions, and I recognize there are differences, distinct differences between New Hampshire and Vermont on, on land use permitting. You've got Act 250, New Hampshire does not. But still, it is still locally driven. Absolutely. But, but there are regional sometimes statewide impacts of these accretion of local decisions all coming together. Uh, And so one town approving one development might not have much noticeable impact outside of its boundaries, but each town making those sorts of decisions over the years, time and time again, has a noticeable, measurable, significant impact. Mm -hmm. So how can communities when they're considering their development patterns and their zoning, if they are either hoping for, wanting, whatever, maybe like a resort or or more more vacation related development, like what should they also be considering for impacts around like our conversation with taxes and roads and, and that type of thing, besides just the permitting process? In, in your comprehensive plans, you need to be thinking about where you want development to happen and, you know, what kind of development you want to happen. And I'm not familiar enough with uh, the Vermont taxing structure, but here in New Hampshire, we have a few tools that are available at the local level. I would say not enough tools yet that municipalities can use to induce certain types of development using the local property tax and, and locally granted exemptions to foster certain types of development, whether it's rehabilitation of downtowns or now new development of housing. Uh, so those are, those are tools that are available to municipalities to encourage uh, development to happen. What I heard you saying though, is that when a town is considering or a village is considering its own development, it might not be considering how that development is impacting communities for towns over that will then be driven through. In all likelihood, it's not. And so thinking regionally about these kinds of patterns and how one act influences the other is something that we um, don't do as often as we could here because we have really no county government. 
No, but you do have regional planning commissions. We do, yes. a very distinct and important role in Vermont. I'd say an important role in New Hampshire too, but less. Uh, they have less power associated mm-hmm. with them than the Vermont regional planning commissions do. Now, the Vermont RPCs are, are really important in the local development scheme because of Act 250 and the, the ability of the uh, regional planning commission essentially to help guide development from a regional perspective. And so I, I think for communities that are looking at the possibility of different types of development, they should be turning to their regional planning commission and asking them, well, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Hey, thank you. So, so can I ask about taxes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so you touched on sort of incentive structures. And before the break, we talked about the idea of expanding the tax base by adding non-primary homes. So here in Vermont, we have our, our residential tax structure is basically divided between, this is vastly simplified, but divided between two different rates. We have property tax for residential and property tax for non-residential. And non-residential includes non-homestead properties, basically. So places that are not primary homes and businesses and rental units and non-developed land. Those are four very different categories that we've all put into sort of the same rate structure. And then we have in statute that the base rate for the state should always sort of, um, the homestead and the non-homestead should be moving together. So I'm curious to hear from you and you all tax such different things than we do and you like to hide your taxes in little nooks and crannies. So would love to hear more from you about how you see New Hampshire being able to benefit from your non-primary home. Well, so to, to look at the New Hampshire tax structure in a very simplified view is the local property tax and then there's the state stuff. So the local property tax, we, so in New Hampshire, we rely much more on the local property tax uh, than Vermont, although I know Vermont does rely on that quite a bit. In New Hampshire, the, the local property tax, the municipal tax, the school district tax, and then there's also the statewide property tax, which gets redistributed to municipalities for education. Those are uh, the, the lion's share of what goes on at the municipal level. And so that's what people are focused on. The state runs on other sorts of taxes Mm -hmm. uh, and fees. So uh, Emily, you're right. There's a lot of hidden fees uh, that the legislature has passed over the years that run state government. So there's very much in New Hampshire a distinction between local taxation and state taxation. uh, And there's not a lot of interplay between the two. Uh, And so for your local taxation are the... Is there a distinction between primary residences and yeah. non-primary residences for tax? Everyone has, every property has the exact same tax rate, businesses included? Uh, that, and that is a constitutional issue. Wow. That is written into the constitution. Yeah. So much gratitude for our constitution all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. So there's not a lot of flexibility there absent changing the New Hampshire constitution. Wow. That's so interesting. And how do you change your constitution in New Hampshire? And I'm sorry if I am asking something. Sure. So I, you know, I am a lawyer, so I, I okay. actually do know some of this stuff. Uh, so the New Hampshire constitution is done initially by the legislature. So the legislature, both houses of the legislature have to pass something by 
I think it's a two thirds majority of the members, not those present, but the mm-hmm. actual members. Mm-hmm. And, and then it bypasses the governor and goes straight to the voters on the statewide uh, November election. Uh, so that would be as a warrant article on each municipal ballot, whether they approve of this uh, change to the constitution. And there, it does happen from time to time. Uh, the most recent change to our constitution dealt with, um, I think, privacy issues and, and that you know, the, your personal information is inherent to you and uh, is not, and you own it, essentially, which is, yeah, I think, a pretty good thing. Yeah, that's very interesting that you passed that. We have actually almost the exact same constitutional change process here in Vermont, um, but we have to do it over two biennium. So it goes House and Senate, two-thirds of all members, not two-thirds of who's there, bypasses the governor, and then has to come back up the next biennium for the exact same vote and then goes on a referendum to the voters. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So it takes a bajillion years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, did you have all your questions answered around? I taxes? have all my questions because since they can't differentiate, there's like no policy levers there at all. It's even <laughs> harder than ours. Well, I mean, that that's a good a, a good point, though. There, there are some ways within the constitutional structure to deal with taxation. So in certain circumstances, you can look at on commercial properties, you can look at certain types of commercial properties based upon their, their income as opposed to uh, their market value. But those are, those are uh, narrow exceptions. And can you add like view fees or well, vacancy? Yeah, so can you add a vacancy fee? Is that? There, there is. We love um, fees over there. You can't do that on the local tax bill. Okay. But a number of years ago, appraisal companies, the assessing companies that were hired by municipalities, started separating out the value of a view on a particular property. And people viewed that as a view tax. They saw it as a separate tax when really it was it was simply the value to the property of having a view, which you can, you can figure out if, you know, having a view does increase the market value. But the fact that it was being separated on a tax bill made a lot of people really upset, you know, especially the farmers who were saying, my cows don't appreciate the view. And so the legislature legislature addressed that. I don't think that they substantively changed the law, but at least um, people felt better about how it was being addressed locally. So I want to shift gears in the interest of time and talk about the COVID migration, quote unquote, how have you seen that play out in, in New Hampshire? And, and I know we're still sort of in COVID, everything hasn't sugared off yet, but what are you anticipating or what are you keeping an eye on as far as impacts go? It, there's a lot going on here. And, you know, it, the I'll, I'll park the, the tragedy of COVID to the side here and just acknowledge it. And this is a, a really difficult time and tragic for many, many people. It's also from a, an analysis standpoint, it's fascinating to see what's going on, how people are changing their decision-making, what they're choosing to do, where they're choosing to live. Uh, and there's a lot of anecdotal stuff out there too. Some of it uh, kind of apocryphal, you know, so you, you, you listen to the, the realtors in New Hampshire and they're saying, oh, it's, you know, and the, the purchase market is just nuts. 
Uh, so the median sale price in Rockingham County, the, the seacoast area of New Hampshire, was over $700,000 uh, last month, uh, which is just astronomically high for New Hampshire. And what they're saying is it's all the out-of-state buyers. Hmm. Well, so we've been looking at this and we, we, we actually buy the data on all the deed transactions. We filter it out and we look at where people are coming from when they're buying homes in New Hampshire. And historically, most of the purchasers in New Hampshire are from New Hampshire. Hmm. There has been in the past couple of years, an uptick in the proportion of buyers from Massachusetts in particular, a slight, I would say almost imperceptible increase in buyers from other places too, globally. You know, sometimes it's Arizona, sometimes it's Connecticut, sometimes it's Rhode Island, sometimes it's Vermont or Maine. But mostly the, the out-of-state buyers in New Hampshire are coming from uh, Massachusetts. So between, uh, say, 2019 and 2020, those two years uh, in whole, uh, the proportion of buyers from Massachusetts went from about 16% to about 19% of the market. It's not a whole lot, not a big change. But what's happening in COVID? It has gone up still some more. So we have numbers through the, the end of the first quarter in 2021, and it's up over 20%, maybe 21% buyers from Massachusetts. A change, yes. A huge change? Mm, not so much. Also looking at county by county data. And I think there probably is more impact in the border communities. So Rockingham County, Hillsborough County, Nashua, Manchester, Portsmouth, Dover, Rochester, the, the communities surrounding all of those areas uh, that are easily accessible uh, to the Boston metro area. It's an easy commute. Down, well, depends on the traffic. Uh, it's <laughs> short in time and distance, not necessarily time commute. So those are, the, those are really appealing for people who want to get away from Boston, but not be too far that they can't commute. So I think, can I jump in for a second? Yeah, I yeah. think that's really interesting. And we call sort of the folks from Massachusetts, we call them flatlanders here. And, but while we're seeing sort of that trend slightly with people moving from Massachusetts to Vermont, what we're also seeing is folks moving from our met, quote metropolitan areas. So Burlington, or even Chittenden County proper to Franklin County, which is just a little more rural to the north. And so we're seeing the same trends in state as um, slightly, you know, and again, along the border, not people moving all the way to the kingdom. And so I think it's, I think sort of this natural desire to get from the very densely populated to the slightly less densely populated happens within our states just as much as it might happen across the border sometimes. And so that's an interesting piece of that to me. I think that is happening. And I think another thing is happening too. And if you look at the 2020 census county data and you just look at a map showing uh, which counties lost population and which counties gained population, you see a, a continued depopulation of the very rural counties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Plains states still concentrating to the cities, but not necessarily living in the cities but in the metro areas. So we see people perhaps leaving the, the, the downtowns and moving to the suburbs, people moving from rural areas to the exurbs. Uh, there is mm -hmm. an ongoing uh, continual con uh, concentration of population in certain areas. Mm -hmm. You know, looking at, at the uh, where people are moving to uh, in New Hampshire, looking at, at home purchases, in 2020, 
the greatest percentage increase in home purchase prices year over year from 2019 to 2020 on a county basis, and the greatest percentage increase in the units, number of units sold were in our rural counties, not in our, our metro counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were in, you know, up north in Coas County and Grafton County, which is, you know, Upper Valley and, 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 and those areas, Carroll County and Mount Washington Valley. Uh, that's where we were seeing the greatest increase, percentage increase in sales prices year over year and uh, numbers of sales. People are, have a greater interest in those areas now, in part because you can still get to Boston if you need to. You can even, you know, it's a long drive, but even from Coas County, you can, it's a, like a three, four hour drive, you can still get there. It's not a commute, but if you need to go to say a, a doctor's appointment in Boston, you can still do that. Looking at the age of purchasers too, we find that in Coas County, the northernmost county in New, in New Hampshire, we have the greatest proportion among all counties of cash buyers, which is highly suggestive that people are buying vacation homes or moving there permanently from wherever else. Now, whether those patterns will stick, that's the real question. So there there are COVID patterns, some of which have accelerated pre-existing trends, some of which are new. And the new ones, the real question is, will they stick after COVID? We don't know. So we are almost out of time. And so I just want to touch in with you, Ben, and just see, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. What do you feel is really important for listeners to take away from this conversation? Perhaps the most important thing, we're talking about housing and housing development and, and building community. I think it's important for folks to recognize that, as I said before, you know, the type of housing that gets built has uh, so much impact on our communities. Resort development, great for the tax base, but development where people will live as their primary residence is what adds to our communities. But when I walk around the the streets of my town, I love hearing uh, the laughter of children. I do not wanna be in some dystopian town that is only old people who are paying their taxes. I wanna hear kids walking on the sidewalks and playing in the playground. And that's, that's a sign of a healthy community. That is all the time we have on today's episode, unfortunately. Thank you, Ben, so much for joining us today. If people want to find out more org- uh, information about uh, New Hampshire housing, where would you recommend they go? You can go to our website, which is www.nhhfa.org. Fantastic. Thank you. Emily, if people want to find more information for you or uh, reach out, where can they go? I don't have it conveniently behind my shoulder the way Ben does, but it is emilykornheiser.org where folks can find my email, my social media feeds, some regular updates that have slowed this summer, and any notice of upcoming events. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at 2 p.m. on Friday on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on iTunes and BCTV, our Facebook page, and the Montpelier Happy Hour.captivate.fm. Hey, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, you too.